The views expressed in our episodes are ours alone and do not represent any other organizations. Our episodes discuss internet crimes against children and cases that involve the exploitation of children and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to the show, Catfish Cops. I'm Tony Godwin. I'm Brandon Poor, and we are shouting out to who today, Tony Godwin? Well, first and foremost, we're going to shout out to a new friend that we just made with uh, Safe Surfing. Safe Surfing. Safe Surfing Foundation. Um, You can get to them at safesurfing.org, I think. Yep, .org. On Instagram, Safe Surfing, and YouTube, Safe Surfing Foundation. Um, you can go to our resources page and you'll have Safe Surfing on there. We are also shouting out to our friends, colleagues, and partners over at the DCAC and the Crimes Against Children Conference. Amen. Um, that is one of the, if it is the largest conference of its kind. It's got to be. In the world. Yeah, I know it is. So it's it's um, coming up this August. And you're going to hear from some of our friends over at DCAC about the life of a case inside the Dallas Children's Advocacy Center. Yep. Um, and they're going to give us some insight on what happens in a forensic interview, who the family advocates are. Um, hopefully we'll have some time to hear from the founder of the conference, uh, Mr. Walsh. Uh, and then we have amazing we actually got you know the invitation accepted from the ceo of the dcac now so we did we hope to talk to her soon as well we did very exciting irish birch we're very happy to uh have that happen and then i think our last uh shout out is as always to sonia ryan in the carly ryan foundation um you know sonia had to return back to australia for a short period of time take care of some stuff but uh, we hope she'll be back soon enough to help us continue in our efforts to make some changes here in Texas. And uh, so. And now, without further ado, we must introduce a special guest. We had someone on from the Tarrant County side, and we heard very quickly about why we didn't represent the Dallas side. And we have been trying to get you on for months now months. so here months. you are carrie pascal here i am here. thank you <laughs> she's, like, she's like oh great thanks uh <laughs> carrie pascal um we're going to talk with carrie today about some um things that you probably would have never heard about before so um but before we get into sort of the the meat and potatoes of what she does let's talk about what what you come from and where you've been and what you've done before you've gotten to DCAC. So tell us about yourself, Carrie. Well, I currently am the chief investigative and support services officer at the Dallas Children's Advocacy Center. So I'm on the executive team. And what I do is I oversee our forensic interview department and our family advocate department there. So two large direct service programs, which I love. It's amazing work. I have amazing staff who do amazing work every day. 
<clears throat> prior to that, I was with the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office as the child uh, forensic interviewer with the Crime Against Children Unit there. Oh, uh, I was so, there for 14 years. Yes, she has a background in forensic interviewing. So you can probably speak, um, obviously you can speak better than we can about that process, but you're an expert in that field as well. And then turn that expertise into becoming an executive at DCAC. Coming from the Tarrant side, or, or let's just talk in generalities, what's the difference between DCAC Dallas Children's and another advocacy center here in Texas? What's what's the feel or the, the biggest differences between that? So I'll start off by talking about the similarities. So okay. the similarities are we're all um, working towards the same goal. We all have the same mission, which is to improve the lives of a Use children in our county, right? right. So all CACs kind of have that same common um, goal and core values, right? What I will say, having worked in Tarrant County for nearly 20 years before I came to the Dallas County side, is there is a huge difference coming to Dallas County. And in Tarrant County, I there there's lots of volume, there's lots of cases. I had my fair share of horrible cases and that I saw on a weekly basis, but it is just different Dallas County, the volume and the sheer vile nature of the cases that we see, you just can't prepare yourself for it. No matter where you come from in Dallas, it's just different. And I I say this all the time when we're interviewing candidates who want to come work at DCAC, who maybe have come from other centers all over the state. The content is just different. It's just different in Dallas County. And there's no way to really prepare anybody for that. But I'll hire people from even Houston or Tarrant County that, you know, six months in will say, yeah, you're right. (laughs) It's just different. The sheer volume and the sheer nature of the cases is different. Yeah, and we're over it. I mean, DCAC has a couple locations, but the main campus there, I mean, we tell people about – Advocacy, advocacy centers in general are very, um, I guess, positive places, right? And that place in particular is just, it's a beautiful spot. It's a, it's a really happy, lively environment in so much as like we're taking the worst things that kids have to deal with and right. just giving them a positive response to helping them out of that, right? Yeah. So, so we actually have a, a beautiful facility that was just expertly designed and it's amazing, right? And, and it, it is a place for families to come to feel comfortable and safe in dealing with all of the entities that they need to deal with during any child abuse investigation. And so on one hand, we see the absolute worst of the worst in Dallas County. So yeah. on one hand, it's very sad and right. depressing, but what we also see is lives changed and we see kids who walk in on that day of forensic interview and they're traumatized and things are horrible and their their family core structure is literally falling apart and then they graduate from therapy and we see kids and families come together and you know leave with a sense of hope and healing that maybe they didn't have never had, yeah. but certainly didn't have on that first day. And so, so it, it's a weird balance, yeah, right? We see the worst dynamic the worst, to see but, it, but we see such good too. And yeah. no right. one knows what you mean when you say graduate, but I, I told this story for years to law enforcement. Like you want to talk about a, a tear jerking moment. I the mean. moment of like, it, do you, you want to see hard, you know, tough cops, 
break down in tears, just yep. weeping. You watch them hi- stand along the line and high five that kid that's graduated therapy. Talk about what that means and what graduation from therapy is. So when a kid comes to our center and they go through that investigative process and they go through our clinical process and, and are able to get the amazing services from our clinical department. Once they graduate from services, we pre-COVID had an in-person graduation ceremony, which is, um, we would send it out to all of our staff to put it on their calendar, to come down to our main hallway and stand there while the therapist walked the child down with the caregiver and say, this kid's worked so hard in therapy. They, you know, have done everything that we've asked them to, and they've worked so hard, um, to address their trauma, right. That they came in with. And then they announce that they're graduating and they get to run down the line of just hopefully 20 or 30 employees and high five. We've done it a little differently during COVID, which has been really fun. We've had a drive-through graduation. Oh, cool. So we have our families show up and they're able to drive through and we're cheering them on. We've had Baca come out and rev their motorcycles while the kids are driving through. So, you know, you talk about what a tearjerker it is, you know. As a forensic interviewer, you know, we because that's what's in my blood. That's what I know, right? right. We're pretty tough. Yeah. And so we Clearly. <laughs> approach our days, you know, and, and we l- typically don't have a whole lot of emotion about what we're doing. But I will tell you, I tear up at every single graduation. I did too. I, the, the one I went to um, a year, it, it was several years ago, but watching that kiddo was, I mean, you... I think there was just a transformation and yeah. just to see the kiddo, like they were beaming and, and they were walking down and high five. And of course, I mean like grown men and women are weeping and this kid's like, what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> but right. it was just like, there was a happiness because you know that they've come from the worst of the worst. And hopefully we've now seen them be able to say, this is the point at which that no longer affects me. I'm going to be okay. Yeah. yeah. And as investigators, we often, we don't get to be a part of that very often, right? Yeah. Because right. you see what's happening on that front end when the crisis is unfolding and yeah. when all of the trauma is coming out. And rarely do we get to be a part of the happy ending. Yeah. I told I told cops that come into our field, like, you need to go watch a graduation because it's going to remind you yeah. of why you do this. And you're going to be able to be like, it's a refreshing moment of, okay, now I can go and, you know, that just gives me energy for the next. Yeah. It just, yeah. It, from the investigative side, it just affirms the jobs that we're doing, you know, like uh, you can't really put them into words and how that, you know, that experience feels, but, you know, we get asked tons of times as I'm sure you do, like, how do you do the job you're doing? How do you deal with all that tragedy and that trauma? And, and that's the answer. The answer is, I see what it does because it works. You get to see the process too. Like, yeah. hey, this we believe in this MDT process, and you get to see kind of the the benefits of it. Yeah, I think you know, as investigators, so much we we know the process is happening. We yeah. know that what we're doing every day is making such a difference. But to see it, yeah, you know, in, yeah. in a visual way, like you know it, right. but when you actually see it play out it's 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 really emotional and it does like you said it brings you back to just kind of renews your energy like and that's why i do what i do well it's the planting of the seed right we're dropping seeds all along the way and then when you see it just bloom and blossom and it's 
you know, it's great. It's inspiring because that's really what it's all about. And to see a a gathering of people that are passionate as we all are about it, that's that's the rewarding part. One for me, that's the that's the cherry on the top of the Sunday and then putting the guy away for a long time is is the secondary big reward on yeah. our side. Well, and we're going to talk about I mean that's not always the happiest moment obviously for the kiddos if right. they're, you right. know. So that's something that we weigh out too is that we have to look at what it's going to do long term to the family and and like you said their family is now falling apart. So right. um but yes, the DCAC side there's differences and there's similarities. I love that you started with similarities because that's a good point. These CACs are doing this work all over Texas and now all over the country, right? Yeah. I mean, in all honesty, all CACs, we're a united front, right? We all want the same things. We're all working towards the same goal. We're fighting for the same things. And while there's differences amongst, um, Mm -hmm. you know, different counties and different states, we're all moving towards the same goal and yeah. that's improving yep. the lives of abused children all over. Right. And helping them through the justice and healing process. That's, that's our, and it's cool to see game. like, you know, uh, Brandon's in a position where he gets to see both sides, the Fort Worth side, the Dallas side, I'm strictly the Dallas side, but I've gone and taught at other CACs around the state. Plus I've been involved in other cases that transcended to another jurisdiction. And so to see how it works on that end it, and to see that it's, I mean, generally the same concept and everything. It's it's very cool to even kind of think about, um, you know, that everybody is on that singing the same song and the same sheet of music, you know, at the same time. And that's that's really uh, reassuring. And I hope that's reassuring for the families that have to go through that, you know, even though we're just telling them, telling them, you know. But we also brag on DCAC because... As you should. <laughs> <laughs> we do, right? We yeah. talk about DCAC as, like... I think that they they teach the other CACs around the country this is how it should be done. And it's kind of a, a front runner, right, in protocols and, and practices and how they do it. Absolutely. I, I, I 100% believe, while I believe in all CACs, and I think all CACs in Texas are amazing and good, and we're all friends, right? Yeah. So there's like friendly competition right. here and there. We joke about it, but we're all on the same team. But when I think about DCAC, and of course, that's the center that I represent and the center where I work and the staff that right. I supervise are from DCAC, I do believe that we are national leaders and yep. international leaders in yep. the gold standard of what to do, how to do it, how to do it to the, to the best of our ability and with fidelity. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, you've done interviews for me and I've watched you as a forensic interviewer and I've seen you on the leadership side. And, and so we can't obviously speak highly enough of what you guys do in general and just, and, um, but you're also kind of an expert, um, kind of an expert. I, I, you are of. an expert. <laughs> you are an expert in, in certain things having to do with the outcry of abuse, right? And, and so um, we're going to talk with the DCAC people about the life of a case, which would involve forensic interviewing. So I'm going to save the forensic interviewing side of that for, some, for that later one. But I want to talk about something that kind of goes hand in hand with forensic interviewing, which is like, how does the disclosure process work? Um, and so you've taught... Uh, I know courses that I've seen and been to and and um, about this process and and some of the things that we should expect 
in an outcry of child sexual abuse and physical abuse and some of the things we should not expect and also like how do we walk through those things and how do we dispel myths so i think we're going to probably end up talking for two or three episodes but i want to kind of go through that in detail um, and just bear with us if we ask stupid questions about it because i think that our listeners don't know maybe not anything about it if they're not coming from a law enforcement aspect, but I'm sure we're about to learn a lot about this process as well. And I think that that's going to help everyone. Um, Cause as we say every week, we want to create advocates um, because if we can create advocates in the people that listen to us and in, in our general society and communities, then we have people that fight to end this problem. And I think that is the only way we may end up ending this problem. So um, let's talk about that disclosure process. What do I mean about when I, when I say disclosure process, what does that mean? Wow. There's so much to cover in disclosure process. And I love what you said about all of us being an advocate. And I think all of the listeners out there, especially if you're a parent, an aunt, an uncle, a family friend, just, you know, an older person in a child's life, we're all the advocate in somebody's life who is, who is a child. Right. And so understanding this process benefits everyone in society, because if we can all understand it, then we can better protect our children. And ultimately that's our goal. Right. Um, the, the disclosure process is, it's such a, it takes so much time to unpack everything about the disclosure process because it really is what it says. It's a process and the process is different for every single person. There's, there's no way for me to give you this black and white outline and say, this is what it should look like. This is what it will look like. And if it doesn't look like this, then there's a problem. It really is very individualized and it is so dependent. I mean, just the three of us sitting here, yep. right? Our backgrounds are different. Our parents are different. How we were raised, our religious beliefs, our core values, everything is so different. So a disclosure process for any of us is going to look completely different because it's so dependent on all of those factors. Right. And the way that, you know, I, I you say that I'm an expert. I mean, I, I, I am an expert, and then I also feel completely unqualified to be an expert. So, you know, a little bit of humility there. But when I explain this to, to juries, because I do testify as an expert about disclosure a lot, I talk about how it is very similar to what we traditionally think of as the grief process, right? So when you when you think about grief, you think about someone loses a loved one and they're grieving and all of the different things that they experience and feel throughout that process of, of really processing through that loss. So they go through denial and anger and bargaining and depression and acceptance, all of those things. As a society, we're very open to that concept, right? We, we look at someone who's grieving and we're like, of course you're angry. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And you can be angry for as long as you need to be. And, oh, yeah, you may be depressed for the rest of your life, and we're going to accept that too. Is that because we've all kind of experienced some grief of some sort? Is that what's – I think it's a common experience. Okay. Yeah, it's a common experience. It's something that society can relate to. It's something that they've seen – either either experience themselves or seen other people experience – But when you think about child abuse, that's something that rarely has anyone actually seen, Mm. right? They may know people that Mm. have experienced it, but it's not something they've seen. It's not something tangible to them. 
But if you think about the disclosure process being very similar to the grief process in that there's different stages, there's different things someone might experience and feel, but it it's not going to be the same for every single person. Right. There's not an order to it. There's right. no right or wrong. Um, you know, you think about, you would never say to someone who is grieving the loss of a loved one, hey, listen, you've been depressed for a little while. I need you to move past that because it's right. good for me. We would never say that. Right. But when you look at child abuse investigations and what we do every day, that's what we're doing, right? We're saying, hey, at two o'clock on Thursday, which is the time of your forensic interview, right. I need you to be ready to talk about it. Ah, uh, yeah. Right? And we're oftentimes giving they're time not. to say, like, yeah, you got to get, get ready because yeah. it's coming. Right. Well, even from the perspective mm. of saying that to someone who's an adult and can comprehend, like, okay, I need to prioritize, I need to do this. And kids are totally different from that perspective. Right. Like, that's not their – and I think that's the disadvantage that we we – we put on to them, you know, as, as parents will sometimes do. And just what a confusing situation that is for, for a kid who's not even close developmentally, you know, where maybe their mom or dad is, or their whatever trusted person they believe is now telling them, Hey, it's time to move on and get past this. That's easier said than done. I'm not ready to talk about stuff when someone tells me to all the time either. Right. Right. On, on command, but, right. that, but and, and you know, it's out of necessity because we're trying to protect kids and make right. them safe. And so timelines are necessary yeah. in these yeah. cases. Sometimes there's a sense of urgency to make sure a kid is safe or make sure someone dangerous is off the street. So we have to do that. Um, but it's in direct conflict with the disclosure process because the two often don't align. And yeah. so then as investigators, we're scratching our heads and saying, well, why isn't her disclosure more? perfect and more concise and more step-by-step timeline. It just doesn't make sense. There's holes. Well, we're the ones that set the time frame on when she was, she or he was supposed to be ready to talk about it, not the child. And so how do the, how do we expect what, and let's, to someone that's listening who may not have ever known anyone who's experienced abuse or think hopefully um, they haven't experienced it themselves. What are we looking at as far as when a kid comes forward and says something's happened? Is that usually because it just happened today, or what? What is the disclosure like? What is that process? Yeah, what's the process? So, so I'll say something about what you said that some of our listeners may not know anybody, right? Yeah. What I would say to all the listeners is every single person listening to this podcast knows someone that was sexually abused as a child. You may not know it because they've never told you, Uh, but you know someone. Statistically speaking, every single one of us knows somebody that's been sexually abused, and they likely will never tell. They'll take it to their grave, or they'll tell as an adult. So everyone knows somebody. I mean, if you if you think about one in four right. girls are sexually abused by the time they're 18. One in four. One in four. Girls. Girls. One wow. in five or six boys. Wow. And so when you're saying that, okay, so we talked about, you know, dispelling myths. And I, I believe that there are a lot of myths about child abuse that people believe. Mm-hmm. And they believe them as their truth, their absolute fact truth. 
but we want to work to fix that because if you if you're going to create advocates right in a community they need to know what's real and what's not and so one of those is that kids are going to tell right you know right they're going to out, if they if they have been sexually abused or physically abused they're going to tell someone right and and what we know from research is that most people will never tell so you think okay so how do we know that well, they conducted randomized surveys over the phone anonymously with people. Have you been sexually abused as a child? Have you ever told anyone? Hmm. And what the study shows is that most people will never tell, which wow. is staggering, right? Wow. So that's why I say your viewers, everyone knows somebody who was sexually abused as a child, and they just yeah. may never know it because that person will never tell. So we know that denying it and never telling anyone is really the most common thing to expect. Yeah. So it's completely normal for completely that. Completely normal, right? Not normal. I, I guess that's a bad None word. It's normal. It's not normal because we would hope you're not abused. But it's normalized. But it's normalized right. that they just don't feel like they can tell. Right. Yeah. What are, what's a reason? Oh you, my gosh. Or, I mean, the reasons are endless, yeah. right? So there's, there's guilt and shame associated with being victimized. So there's this... I don't want to tell anybody that this happened to me. I mean, who wants to talk about something embarrassing and scary and humiliating that happened to them? Right. None of us are going to sign up for that right. voluntarily. When, right? when we talked a couple of months ago initially about and getting into the scheduling and all this set up, but you had said something that I wrote down and you said uh, essentially like a child holding on to that disclosure before telling is like, being in the eye of a category five hurricane. And so that when they finally reach whatever point that is where they make that disclosure and we're not talking like an accidental thing, like they intentionally are trying to come out with that, um, that they, they know going in that they're about to walk right back through that eye of the storm. And I thought, well, man, that is, that was a really, you know, why would appropriate we want to do that? way right. to, yeah, to put that, to that in the mindset of someone because we as adults, we think of a hurricane of that magnitude as the absolute worst thing that could ever happen and we wouldn't wish it on anybody, yet these kids are doing this all the time. I thought that was a, a pretty good point that you made back then. I mean, if you think about the courage that it takes as a child to come forward because we know most people don't tell right. most people who do tell don't tell until adulthood the second most common or i mean the third most common thing is that it, that someone discloses as a child but it's significantly delayed or delayed in some way from when the abuse first started but using that analogy i i talk about when i train all the time that the disclosure process if, if you think about a kid the first time that they're abused and you think about how a, a hurricane starts. It starts like a tropical storm out in the middle of the ocean, right? It starts off relatively small compared to a Category 5 right. hurricane. And so as it moves toward landfall, it's picking up different temperatures and, and wind speed, and it's picking up water, and it becomes more and more powerful. So if you use that analogy and think about a child, let's just hypothetically say an 8-year-old girl who's abused for the first time, and it's so confusing. And what sexual abuse does for children in our society is it turns upside down this concept yeah. of what is right and wrong, mm. right? So we teach our kids, if someone touches your private parts, that is wrong. And telling is good, right? right? That's what we teach our kids. And that's what right. we should teach our kids. That's a great message. 
But in actuality, when it happens, kids grow up thinking, okay, this is bad to be touched. It's good to tell. But all of a sudden, it's my stepfather who is a, by daylight hours, a great person. He takes care of our family and he's not telling anyone. And this idea of secrecy is is, is surrounding the child. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's not another myth. Sorry to cut you off. Maybe it's not another myth, but it is something that people misinterpret. Sure. That it's some stranger... You know, that the kid doesn't know. It's someone they know, right? Yeah. In in over 92% of cases, it is someone that the kid not only knows, but loves and trusts. Right. Right. So you take that a step further to when you trust somebody and you're emotionally connected to somebody, and then they do something that is in direct opposite of of who they are normally, the confusion really sets in with kids and they're like, wait a minute, it's bad to be touched and it's good to tell, but now it's this person. So maybe it's okay to be touched and it's bad to tell. And so then they're sitting there and they're like, well, I don't don't know what to do. And so you think about them being in the eye of the storm, holding on to the secret Mm. while the abuse potentially continues. Right. But these dynamics continue to swirl around them, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Because they're told sometimes by the by sure. the offender, right? Sometimes Don't tell. They are. Don't tell. If you tell, this will happen, or so and so will be yeah. mad. And it, and it could be a, a threat. It could be a threat of violence, right? Mm. But it could be, um, it could be a, as simple as if you tell, we'll never get to see each other again. Right. Well, when you're emotionally connected to someone yeah. and you love someone, the thought of not seeing them is hard enough. Right. Right. And I would argue also that there doesn't even have to be a threat. Uh, yeah. Right. So that the sheer power differential and power and control issue. So if this is someone that is a caretaker, if this is someone that is violent with mom they don't have to say a word to get me to keep that secret. I right. know what they're capable of, and I know how powerless I right. am in this situation. Uns- unspoken threats. That sure. Just implied. a visual to them and imply to them that this is what's going to happen. And and so that whole dynamic, you, you mentioned that before about how that whirlwind of emotions and that Cat 5 is brewing up from you know the tropical storm to when they do – come forward with some disclosure, whether a partial or something else. And then the reality of what happens when it is that loved one, it is that stepfather. And then all of a sudden he's the guy that's paying the bills and providing the food and you have younger siblings. And so, I mean, I guess you could talk about that and what that does in the context of that child and, and maybe that reluctance because they see mom over there crying and, and now you know, some other people have come to the house and said he can't come back and there's all these things and all the fingers are sort of pointing at that child. And so from an emotional standpoint, that's got to be super, super difficult, you know? Yeah. So, so a kid goes through this whole process with all of these fears, right? So whether it's directly, you know, given to them from the alleged perpetrator or whether it's, it's just the feelings that they have from all of these dynamics swirling around them. Am I going to be believed? Is someone going to protect me? Am I going to be blamed? Is this somehow my fault? And if, if I tell, am I going to destroy my family? And so oftentimes they hold on to this disclosure for a, a period of time because they have all of these fears about these things happening. And I will tell you, in so 
many situations, all of their fears come true when they do tell, mm. even to the best of parents, right? right? right. So something that is super common that, that I have seen over my many years in this field is a, a child discloses and when they they meet with their caregiver right after everything is, you know, uncovered and, and discussed, the caregiver will say, why didn't you tell me right away? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That that That's not the parent's fault. I mean, they're really reacting from an authentic right. place. They don't understand it. But a kid... We tell kids their whole life, you're supposed to tell when this happens. But then when it happens, there's so right. much confusion and they don't tell right away. And then they worry about, am I going to be blamed for not telling right away? Right. And so all of this just swirls around <clears throat> them and then they finally tell. And guess what? All of their fears come true. Yeah. Why didn't you tell right away? You know, you should have told me. I don't believe you. And so then. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the flip side of it is then right. you have that component or that element of the society that says you're not being truthful you're lying i've never seen this i've never seen that uh you know that's and okay gosh, so how confusing do they so we see kids sometimes do tell and then someone goes no that didn't happen like right what does that do to the disclosure i mean if if you tell something happened and i say i don't believe it or we're not going to talk about that i mean what is that does that generally delay it or does it just cause it to not happen at all? I mean, it can do several things, right? It can just stuff it down. And what it says, you know, you know, you know we all have these internal responses of, of being aware of danger. And so what we do when we don't believe kids is we suppress that, right? And so we see we see adults that have been in a lifetime of victimization yeah. of in unhealthy relationships and just a cycle of violence. Well, if they're constantly being told your alarm bells don't matter, your alarm bells aren't right, yeah. then of course their alarm bells aren't going off when they meet someone unhealthy for them. Right. So when we don't, like it's so critical, and we say this all the time at, at, at the DCAC, that trauma-informed care, one, one re- requirement that we have to have is that child has to have a caregiver that is supportive. It doesn't have to be a parent, but you need one adult, at least one adult in your life that says, I believe you, I stand with you, I protect you, and I'm going to walk through this with you. Absent that, I mean, you you think about being an eight-year-old girl and walking through a complete path of destruction through that Category 5 hurricane and not having anyone. a 30-year-old adult. Yeah, can you imagine? I don't have anyone around me that says, I believe you. I support you. I'm with you. I wouldn't want to do it alone. I just, it's just easier just to pretend something didn't happen. Right. Right. When you say trauma informed care, tell us what that means. So that just means really, first of all, using evidence-based practices. So in our family advocate assessment tools and in our clinical interventions, both in assessment and uh, modalities that we use at DCAC and in our therapy sessions. It, it's using research-based practices that we know work, right? So and there's that evidence we, that they've worked. There's evidence that they worked, but also it's all focusing on the trauma, right? So, so we can do talk therapy. Hmm. We can do talk therapy for two years with a victim, and we can talk about everything under the sun. But if we don't talk about the trauma... Yeah. And we don't help a kid walk through 
the trauma and what happened to them and the sensory details that surround them right. and the things that really affect them, then all the therapy in the world is not going to be helpful. Yeah. So when we say trauma informed, we mean that we're focused on this event or this set of events in your life that have affected you. So you're not seeing a victim for five or 10 years there at the DCAC. Correct. You're addressing what brought them there. And then there are other available avenues for therapy that could help if they need more. Right. But, but this is, we're talking about this pro this is, this issue. Like this is not right. a general thing that we want to talk about. Absolutely. And we have to talk about the trauma and it's also important to have an active caregiver in the treatment plan, right? Because what we have to, and the caregiver needs to hear what happened because you know, kind of older, uh, methods of, of therapy would be like, well, we're gonna we're gonna treat the child and we're gonna talk about it and, and we've got this right. We're not including the caregiver. Well, what we're telling kids is this is so big and uh, so bad that we can't right. even talk to your parents about it. Mm. So trauma informed care is more of not only are we gonna talk about it with you, but we're gonna talk about it with your caregiver because it is. It is manageable. Your caregiver can handle it. Because yeah. if, if if it's so bad that your caregiver can't even handle it, mm -hmm. how are you supposed to handle it? Yeah, exactly. You know? So we hear real-world anecdote stories about, like, well, I asked, you know, I asked, did something happen? And they said no. Mm -hmm. And so if we're talking about a process, is denial a part of that process? Is them saying nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened, and then eventually saying, okay, something happened? Is that abnormal or is that something we should, if they deny something happening and then come and say something happened, is that just so that they're lying about it or what should we expect? I, I think that's totally normal. I yeah. think in, in confirmed cases of abuse, you're going to, it's not uncommon to see a history of denial. You know, when a kid is first asked about that and, you know, we talk about disclosure being purposeful or accidental. There's two different types of ways we can learn about child sexual abuse Purposeful is when a child decides, hey, I'm going to tell somebody. I'm ready to admit that something happened to me, and I'm going to tell them. Maybe they're not really ready to tell everything, right? but on some level, they're ready to tell something. That means that they've emotionally prepared themselves at least a little bit to right. unveil that secret, right? But then we also have kids where abuse is discovered accidentally, yeah. Or someone finds out about it and they have not emotionally prepared themselves to do that. Right. So in those accidental type of disclosures, when what you guys do, when you right. discover images or other forms of evidence that indicate that abuse has happened and, it, and a child has not voluntarily told anybody, and then we ask them about it, their inclination is to go, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Right? It's all about that emotional preparedness. Yeah. And if it's not there, they're, it, it's common for them to deny. Yeah. I've interviewed kids who've been identified in porno pornography, and I have sat in the room with them, and they have said, that is me, that is him, we have no clothes on, and nothing happened. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. When we're looking at images. And right. it, so it's, it's that emotional So that's confusing to parents, right? Like sure. When a parent says, I found this. And then they ask and, you know, then they think, oh, my kid is being like obstinate, 
almost disobedient by not telling me what I'm asking because sure. I see it. I mean, if they're obviously not knowing what's going on, but that's confusing. I think that's confusing to law enforcement too because we see yeah. law enforcement say, I know this kid was in this picture and yeah, then they're saying no. Right. That's something that we should expect if the kid wasn't ready, if the child wasn't ready to talk about it. For sure. And and I think, you know, we, we as adults tend to put our adult expectations onto children, yeah. right? And so we have, this is what I need for my investigation. This is what's going to work for me. So I kind of need you to figure out how to fit into that. And yeah. really, it's just the opposite. They're right. going through their own disclosure process. And what we need to do as investigators is really tailor what we're doing to what they're experiencing. And I I say this to investigators all the time. Sexual abuse is a messy crime. Mm. It is a messy crime and it is full of emotional trauma. So when we're dealing with something messy, the expectation to have this beautiful, perfect outcry, where does that come from? Yeah. Right. We have a messy crime. We're going to have messy disclosures. And what do you say? So tell hard. us about that. What do you mean by it's a messy crime? I know it's secretive, obviously, right? That's a big issue when you say, like, it's not tangible. We can't, society can't see that. We can know someone says they're a victim of it, but unless there was some evidence or, or something like that, that, you know, even I think, I think it's terrible, but I, I think society sometimes says, well, you say that but I can't see it. So that's right. not tangible. So there's secrecy there, but how do those things inter intertwine and intersect? Where does the mess, what does the messiness look like when we're talking about this crime? So if you think about the number I mentioned a, a minute ago, 92 and above percent of child sexual abuse happens with someone that kids know, love and trust. Right. So it's not the stranger on the street right. that, that we need to be afraid of. Right. It's the people we know. So if you think about emotional connection, I mean, even on a superficial level, when you know someone, you have mutual respect for someone, you have positive experience with someone, it's harder to believe bad things about that person. It's harder to tell about that person. If a kid goes into Walmart and is touched inappropriately by a perfect stranger, they're going to tell right away because guess what? Mom or dad caregiver is going to be on board. Mm -hmm. Yes. Let's, let's get that guy held accountable. Let's call the police. There's no emotional connection with that guy. Right. There, there's no disruption of their family unit. Right. Right. But the, the, when you know somebody, when you have an intimate connection, when they're intertwined with your daily life, telling on them, the stakes are higher. Yeah. Right. So, so the, the collateral damage is higher. So mom's going to be upset. Dad's going to be upset. Even if it's a family friend, right. Dad's going to be mad. Yeah. And dad might hurt him. Yeah. That's even something. What do you see? Does that correlate into recantation and why kids will sometimes pull that back? Is how common is that? Let our listeners know. Is that a very common thing? Well, or? before we get to recantation, because that's sort of like one of the things towards the end, we've got more about the like how do we overcome that denial first? How do we teach people that that that's something we should overcome? So you know, when we talk about the disclosure process, denial is super common. But then there's also what we call a tentative disclosure process, right? Which is when a kid says, okay, I know what's happening is not okay and I'm ready to tell. 
mm, but I don't know if I'm ready to tell all of it. Uh, so they'll kind of tiptoe back and forth in this happened, but I'm not ready to talk about this. This is a little too sensitive, scary, um, embarrassing, whatever. So they kind of go back and forth. That's called the tentative phase of disclosure. We're going to see lots of, I don't knows, I don't remember. I think he tried all of those kind of statements indicate to me as an interviewer, as a trained interviewer, that mm. they're in a tentative phase of disclosure. So if a parent is to learn about that or someone hears about an outcry or the disclosure and they said, well, I don't know, or I, I think it was this, but I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure even people listening are going to say like, well, I would just think that's, you know, they're making something up. If they don't know, you're going to know. Right. That's, like that's got to be confusing, right? That's and what a terrible place to put a kid that they're in that moment of I don't know if I should tell this. So I say I don't know and now it automatically causes someone not to believe. Sure. Yeah. I, I say as a parent you have to be emotionally attuned with your kid at all times and if it doesn't sound right, even if you don't know definitively, you can't prove it, you you don't know, you act on what they do say. Because what I have found in the thousands of kids that I've interviewed is I will have a kid come in and tell me 100% more than what they've told their caregiver. Yeah, They're not going to tell the people that will have an emotional reaction, right? So if I tell mom, mom's going to cry, she's going to be upset. I mean, I think about, yeah. I have an 11-year-old daughter who I love more than life itself. I would fall apart if something happened to her and she yeah. told me. I wouldn't be able to contain that. And you're used to talking about And I'm this used stuff. to talking to kids. Right. Yeah. But a, an 11-year-old kid that I don't know coming to tell me, they're going to be able to tell me, and I'm not going to have that emotional reaction. Right. Because kids see that emotional fallout, whether it's anger or emotion, whatever, and they think... They're not thinking, okay, they're sad about what happened to me. They're sad because I told them. Yeah. And so it's easier for kids to tell someone that they have no emotional connection to. I've seen parents tell me, like, my kid is not going to tell anyone else what they told me. They only trust me to say it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I'm always like, just trust me. And they go before a forensic interviewer. And I probably said this before on this, on this show. The interviewer gets all of it and the right. parents just amazed that they didn't know all of that stuff because the interviewer and I'm like there's no tie to the interviewer yeah. they don't they don't they're not going to see them again right, right. there's something there and i i think this is you know i think we have such good education programs in place for kids right but i do think we're there's some gaps we're missing some things so we're not educating parents that hey you may not be the one they tell yeah. Because I, I'm with you. I see parents right. all the time say, we're so close. She tells me everything. He tells right. me everything. If something happened, he would have told me. She would have told me. And that's really not the reality of the situation. Right. So we're not educating parents that you're not going to get all of the information. Yeah. And one of the best pieces of advice that I've gotten in my career was, you know, every kid needs to have an outside adult that is a safe adult. Mm. So for my daughter, my, my best friend, Lisa, yeah. I have told my daughter, there may be things in your life that you need to talk to an adult about, but you're not comfortable talking to me. You can talk to Aunt Lisa about that, right? right? We don't do a good enough job of yeah. letting our kids know that it doesn't have to be me. Because right. sexual abuse most often is not going to be the parent yeah. who they tell. And right. that's, so that's a hard pill for parents to And swallow. we tell our kids, we, uh, one thing we advocate, and so it sounds like what you're saying is 
we advocate have three trusted adults Absolutely. that you can talk to. One inside the home or two inside the home, and then a couple outside the home that you trust. I 100% agree with and that. And so we see sexual abuse reported to school counselors and teachers as well, right? Because And so I think parents get offended sometimes when they're like, my kid told the teacher, but they didn't tell me. And so yeah. they, I think that maybe does that help make it hard for parents to believe? Is that where you th- see the disbelief coming from? I do. I, I, I think I think it is hard as a society in general for us to believe something we've never seen. Yeah. Right. And if you look at the general population, there's lots of crimes that are committed on a daily basis that we might be witness to. Yeah. Assault, hit and run. We could name off all the crimes. Child sexual abuse is not one of them. This is not a crime that happens right. in front of people. Mm-hmm. It's not a crime that happens um, out in the open. Yeah. It is a crime of secrecy. It's a crime yep. that happens in the darkness. It, it's a crime that happens while kids are sleeping. It's a crime that happens in isolation. Right. And as a society, we just have a problem believing things we can't see. And yeah. when you don't see that and you haven't experienced it, or even yep. people who have experienced it still don't want to believe it because they've never seen it. Yeah. Wow. We're going to continue this talk next week with Carrie Paschal, and we will talk to you soon.